Good morning, everyone. It's nice to be back. I was here last week, but I haven't preached in a couple weeks. And uh, so it's nice to be back. I was, uh, I was in Texas uh, for a wedding for Dylan and Jess. Uh, they were here in the first service, part of our church family. And, uh, and so I did a wedding in Texas one weekend. And then I was in Vermont jumping off of uh, waterfalls into the nice, cold, refreshing water. Uh, the fall, the weekend after, and so uh, I'm grateful. Though I'm, gr- I was grateful for the time away to relax a little bit, and now I'm grateful to be back here with you, to be able to share God's word. Amen. And in fact, that's the title of my message this morning: is gratitude. The title is "Be Grateful." And so now, now you might say, "Well, Pastor Brian, that's easy for you to say. You were just in Texas, and then you were jumping off waterfalls in Vermont." And I've been here struggling with a health issue, or I've been struggling with an addiction. I'm facing financial trouble. My marriage is on the rocks. My kids aren't listening. It's easy for you to say, be grateful, but I'm going through some things, Pastor Brian, and I find it hard to be grateful. And to that I say, I understand. I do. I've been through a couple of things myself, amen? And we will go through, or maybe we're in the middle of some really tough times. And yet, even still, we're called, not only are we called to, but we're enabled to be grateful. To, in Christ, live lives of gratitude, even in difficulty. Perhaps, dare I say, especially In difficulty, we are aware of the presence of God. He is close to the brokenhearted, right? Draws near to those who are crushed in spirit. And so be grateful, no matter what you're going through, that God is in the midst with you. Even if you can't see him, and even if you can't hear him, and even if you don't feel him, his word says he'll never leave you or forsake you. That take heart, take courage, be encouraged that in this world you will have trouble, but Jesus says in him we can have peace because he's overcome the world. Matthew Henry was a famous Bible commentator, wrote a lot of commentaries. You probably have seen the Matthew Henry Bible commentary. And there was one time and his wallet was stolen. And so they asked him to reflect on that and he said, well, I'm grateful. And they said, how are you grateful? And he said, well, first of all, I'm grateful because I've never been robbed before. He said, second of all, I'm grateful that although he took my wallet, he spared my life. Third of all, I'm grateful that although he took my wallet and my money, it wasn't really much. And fourth of all, I'm grateful because... I was robbed, and I was not the one doing the robbing. See, no matter what we're going through, if we look, we can see God at work, and we can be grateful. As Christians, we are called to give thanks, to praise God, to be grateful, despite what goes on around us, despite the turmoils of life. And so that's going to be our topic this morning. But before I pray for the sermon, 
We hadn't done this in a while. We did it the first service, and uh, we used to do it at South Coast, and then we came in, and they had this COVID thing, and, you know, it it was a mess, right? But... Why don't you take a moment and say hi to somebody you don't know. You can, you know, you can just say hello, wave from around the room. But say hi to somebody you know. No, don't turn to the person you came with. But say hi, say your name. Hi, I'm Paul. I, you know. It's great to be part of a larger church, but we can get lost in the crowd. You know what I mean? And so that's why community groups, fellowship time in the gym, just time to to talk to one another. It's important to get those relationships, right? So now let me pray. Father, we're here for you to do what you do, God. For you to, through your word and your spirit, convict us, encourage us, instruct us, comfort us, guide us, strengthen us. Meet us through the power of your word and spirit right here where we are. Because we're here, God, to learn from you. And we're here because you have us here. Not because we were invited. Not not for any other reason than you have us here. This word is for each of us, Lord. And so have your way in our hearts, in our lives. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Luke chapter 17, verse 11. says, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. That's not our main scripture. That's going to be the gateway to our main scripture because I want to draw some things out of that. I want to draw some things out of that. First of all, I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where, you know, you just cry out to Jesus, right? Just you're in the middle of something. In my case, most of the time it was self-inflicted, right? But sometimes, whatever, you're just going through stuff. And me, it would always be like, all right, Lord, here I am again. You know, it's me again. Same prayer, same knucklehead. But no matter what it is, we all get to those moments where we just cry out, right? At the end of our self in desperation, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, meet me in this situation. Jesus, would you show up? Because I know there is no other way. And that's what these lepers, that's the place they were at. Now, it's important to realize leprosy wasn't just a physical disease. It was a horrible physical disease, and it was a bacteria that would slowly eat away. Eventually, they would go blind. They would get kidney failure, eventually lead to death, but it's very slow. And so until that time, their skin would rot. And so this was not just a physical disorder, but it affected every facet of their lives. 
It was their social life. You didn't have friends. You couldn't work. You were at the mercy of, you know, hoping people might, you know, throw you a few bucks. There was, it affected every part of your life. There was no waking up one day and forgetting you had leprosy. In fact, that's what you were known as, a leper. It was your label. It didn't matter what your name was. If you had leprosy, it affected everything about you. And so Jesus comes in there desperate. Lord, have mercy on us. We have no hope. We've, we've been in this condition. We're at the end of ourselves. And I want to note one thing that Jesus gives instruction. And I don't know about you, but like me, I always question everything, right? It's like, well, Jesus, why, why are you telling me to go to the priest? Can't you just heal me, Jesus? I mean, what's the deal with that? I, don't, I, I'm, I want to go to you, right? So they could have questioned, because sometimes, you know, Jesus helped me, and then he tries to help you. We're like, except not that way. Jesus helped me a different way, right? So there was desperation, and then there was obedience. And then we see something, something happens. See, there were 10 that were, their lives were completely and radically changed. This wasn't just like, you know, you have a fever and you get up and you feel better now. This was a lifelong ailment. And now this is like, a, this is a change of everything. This is like every, every goal you've ever had. Now you can get a job. Now you can try to, you know, get married. Like your whole life is before you now. And so what did nine people do? They went back to pursuing what they could never but always wanted to pursue. They went about, we presume, to to accomplish their goals. And they received that mercy. They received that physical healing from Jesus. But one, only one, was healed and turned back and praised God with a loud voice and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. He wasn't just like, hey, Jesus, like, thanks, man, that was cool. No, he was like crying. He was like overwhelmed. And, and you know what it says? It says after Jesus asked the question, weren't there 10 and only one came back? He said, rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. Some translations say your faith has saved you. What happened was that he got something that the other nine didn't. Because gratitude is a gateway to God's blessing. Gratitude is a gateway to God's blessing. Now, before we're really tough on those nine, I want you to imagine, because remember we just said like their lives would change radically. It was almost like at one point they were blind and now they could see. Or at one point they were dead and something made them alive. At one point they were enslaved and something set them free. And yet how often are we like the nine that after Jesus radically intervenes and our lives are radically changed that we go about our daily business and we forget about him? See, here's my, one of my main points this morning. They all received physical healing, but only one received the life to the full that Jesus promises. Because gratitude is the gateway to his blessing. People often ask me, what's God's will for my life? And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago when I preached that Paul speaks to that. 
In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, where he says, Give thanks to God in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 5.19-20, Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul seems to be suggesting this radical notion that no matter what's going on, that no matter what we're going through, that somehow we can still live lives of praise to God. Not because of what we have, what we don't, not because of what he did or what he didn't, but because of who he is. What we're going to talk about this morning is, is the depth of authentic Christianity. It is the hardest thing to live out. But in, in this, in this praising God in the middle of the difficulties, we will find a sweetness. We will find his presence and his power. We will find a relationship, a relationship with him develop more intimately than in almost any other circumstance. Because everybody can worship him. Everybody can praise him on the mountaintop, right? I mean, the guys were just literally on a mountaintop, right? And one of the things, whenever you go on any retreat, one of the things they always say to you is, remember when you leave the mountain. Literally and figuratively, remember when life comes at you. Because it's easy to praise him when everything's going good. But then too often, what is... (coughs) Excuse me, what is the object of our praise? Are we really thankful to God or are we thankful for what he's done or what he's given? And so that's what we're going to look at. Our main text this morning is Job. And you might say, well, if the title of the message is Be Grateful, you could have looked anywhere else in the Bible and it would have been more appropriate than Job. I mean, isn't Job the guy who lost all of his livestock and his family and his health? And then even as we see his wife gives him some choice advice, be grateful. But I want to turn there. It's going to be one of our main texts. I think it's one of the richest texts in the Bible, if we can understand the focus of it, which is not, hey, look what's happening to Job, because we can't help but see everything like that. It's, hey, Job is righteous, and it's Job's righteousness, or, or really the object of what makes Job righteous. It's the righteousness of God that's the overarching theme of Job. God inspired this book to be written about a man who lived a very long time ago, likely the oldest book of any book in the Bible, written in approximately 2100 to 1800 B.C., And the last time I preached my message was don't just go through it, grow through it. And this is sort of a part two to that because now what I'm suggesting is not only do you not just go through it and and is there some growth, but I'm suggesting in that process you can be grateful, that you can praise God in the midst of it, that you can be grateful to him in the midst of it and that that in and of itself will be its own reward. And you'll, you'll quickly notice it's incomparable. There's nothing in your life better. We've, I've said this quote so many times when I've preached, and it's one of my favorite John Ortberg quotes. But he says all the time, when you ask people who don't believe in God, the number one reason they don't believe in God, they're gonna tell you suffering, difficulty, struggle. And if you ask people who believe in God, when they grew the most in their faith, they're gonna tell you suffering, difficulty, and struggle. See, perspective 
is everything. If we can turn our focus to God, our perspective changes. And when we understand what Christ has done for us, what he's already done, if he never does another thing in our lives, we can't help but be grateful. And our perspective changes. What if Joseph gave up when he was in prison? What if David gave up after his great sin? What if Paul couldn't get over his past? What if the stories ended different than they did? What if you and I believe the lies the enemy still tell us? That we look back to who we were instead of being reminded of who we are today in Christ? What if we allowed the enemy to isolate us and to keep us away from the things that nourish the word of God, the people of God, prayer, church, group, service? What if we allow the enemy to isolate us because we feel we deserve isolation? What if Job didn't recognize the love of God in the midst of difficulty? See, God remains enough. He deserves and he requests our love and praise in all circumstances, and he remains enough. I'm going to read the first chapter of Job, and then we're going to summarize it and read through it when you can. There's a lot there. The author begins, He was a man in the name of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one, one who feared, <coughs> excuse me, one who feared God and turned away from evil. God says there's nobody like him. He's blameless and upright. He's not perfect, but he's consistent. He has integrity. He has a good reputation. If you ask people about Job, they'd have good things to say. He's a man who fears God. He tries to avoid evil. He's a good man. And so right away, that's made clear to us. That Job isn't perfect, but he fears God and flees from evil. Verse 2 says, There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. Very many servants. This man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house for each one on his day. In other words, on his birthday. So for the birthday, they'd have this multi-day birthday celebration. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So Job's not just a faithful guy who's praying for his kids. Right? I, I like to think I'm a faithful guy and pray for my kids. This was Job's habit. Job regularly prayed, made sacrifices for his kids, and he's like doing it just in case. It's like those kids threw another three-day birthday party. Just in case some good things weren't going on there, I'm going to pray for him. So Job was a loving dad. Because sometimes we can, read, we can read stories in the Bible where people went through emotional stuff and we can sort of divorce them like they, like they weren't human, like they, weren't, like they didn't have emotion. Job had emotion. He loved his, his kids. He prayed for them all the time. Some of us can relate. 
And then in verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. What, jo- what Satan is saying is, well, of course Job loves you. I mean, look at his life. He's a successful guy. He's got a good family. He's got everything going for him. Of course God, of course God, Job, loves you. But what if he didn't have those things? Is his, what Satan's saying is, does God, does Job really love you, God? Or does he just love what you've done for him? Now, before we indict Job, that's a question we have to ask ourselves, isn't it? At the end of the day, when we're grateful for his blessings, is Jesus on the list? It's like that old adage, right? If you, if you went to heaven and every desire, every wish, everything you ever wanted was there, but there was no Jesus, would it still be heaven to you? What are we grateful for in our lives? Do we miss out who God is and, what, and, and the things he's done in us relationally? Or is it just always when he shows up and things work out the way we want him to? We've said before, there's, there's nothing wrong with praying that God will change circumstances or situations or praying for his blessing or praying for a job. There's nothing wrong with that. We said, it's just that that's half of a prayer life, right? Jesus in the garden is, God, take this cup from me, but if not, y'all will be done. So it's okay for us to go, God, change the circumstance. God, provide, but if not, y'all will be done. If not, I trust that you're good, that your ways are better than our ways, that there are things that I do not understand, As parents, we would trust that our kids come to know and love us as good parents, that they come to know that ultimately we want what's best for them. And sometimes you talk to your kids and you tell them what's best for them and they might know it deep down inside, but they're not gonna show it, right? There's that rebelliousness. And and we're the same way. But we have to recognize, we have to receive God as that heavenly father to say, okay, This isn't what I wanted, but if you're with me, I'm not just gonna go through it. I'm not just even gonna grow through it. I'm gonna be grateful for your presence. I'm gonna be grateful because I know you and because what you've done in my life. Satan's saying, Job only loves you because of what you've done in his life, God. And if you took those things away, 
he would curse you. And how many times in our lives as we start to lose things that we perceive as blessings or of important, we begin to curse God. Or we walk away from our faith. God says, okay, Satan, have Adam. I know this man. More importantly, he knows me. Can you imagine if you're like the person and the, you know, Satan's walking around, just, God's like, so what have you been up to? Like, I don't know, doing Satan stuff, you know? Evil here, evil there, looking for people, right? God's like, what about Job? He's a good dude. You check him out. This is my, this is my own, <laughs> my own version. So that Job guy, he loves me. He's the example of, of righteousness, of faith. Can you imagine? I mean, we look at this and we can't get, oh, look what happened to Job. Look what happened to Job. Best thing in his life that happened to Job. You talk to Job after this, you know what Job's going to be? A man who loves God, who has a relationship with God that stood the test of time. We should all be so lucky as Job. Job understood what it meant to have nothing and everything at the same time in God. Verse 13, now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking while in this old wine in their older brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and he said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, you know, bad, bad news comes, and then before you know it, it seems like everything's bad news. And you know what I mean? Right? One bad thing happens your whole day, you know? It seems like how it works. At this point, I would have been like, all right, just close the door. No more servants, right? But no, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 18, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now at this point, Job has options, doesn't he? There's a lot of things Job can do right now. In verse 20, it says, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. Wait, what? Job. Job. I mean, look what's happened. I mean, you've lost everything, Job. And then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I have come from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I had stuff, God was good because I don't have stuff that doesn't change God that just changes my circumstance if God's only good when we have stuff then the object of our affection is the stuff 
The object of our adoration is the stuff. Faith isn't good in and of itself. It's the object of our faith that makes it good. And Job knew, well, he gave it, and he took it, and he's no less good now. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, that's deep. That's true spirituality. That's perfected spirituality, right? Job wasn't a perfect man, but he had a perfect faith. And to, and to get a perfect faith, that's tested, right? It costs to get to that place. But then you recognize that you're not alone, that you've never been alone, been alone that he walks with us. God gives, he takes away, it's up to him. See, sometimes bad stuff happens because we live, we make choices. Sometimes bad stuff happens to me because of my own choices. Sometimes bad stuff happens to me because choices of people around me. Sometimes bad stuff happens, we don't know why. We live in a sinful, fallen world. And sometimes we don't have the answers. You know, so many times in my life and in life as pastors, we get calls to show up in the unimaginable situations. And so many times I've had conversations with my wife with the other pastors, and what do you say? What do you do? It's not in what we say. Sometimes there are no words. See, we're going to look at Job's friends, and they thought they had to have all the answers, but sometimes all we do is we show up. We say, I don't, I don't know. I don't pretend to know why things happen all the time, but I know that God is good. I know he loves you. I know you're not alone, and I'm going to walk with you. See, that's all we're going to do. Sometimes we're so worried about not saying the right thing, not doing the right thing, as if it all depends on us. All Job's friends need to do is show up and be like, Job, man, we're here with you. We love you. We're going through this with you. But instead, people well-intentioned give all the wrong advice. Job's a historical narrative, but it's also written as Hebrew poetry. So we know that Job was, was, a, was a real person who is known by the community. And God used him as an illustration. And so in the first three chapters, God tests Job's faithfulness by allowing some things to happen to him. God told Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only don't put your hand on him. And then he loses everything. His crops, his health, his wife, his wife, you know, imagine this. You know, your friends all come, they give you bad advice. Like, man, I, you know, those guys, they're killing me, right? And then you're, you know, everything's falling apart and you go home and you're like, honey, I had a real rough day today. I mean, the kids are dead. All the animals are dead. My friends are giving me horrible advice. But we're going to get through this, honey. We've seen enough Hallmark movies and you and I, we're going to get together and we're going to get through this because we love each other. And you know what she says? Look it up. She says, you, with that God stuff, curse God and die. I mean, talk about marriage therapy, right? It's like, that is not good advice. That is not what you want to hear. So Job's alone. He doesn't have anybody. He's lost. There's nothing left to lose 
Surely now, Job, and you see if you read through it, he questions. He has emotion. He, he, he wrestles with the Lord. But in all of that, the Bible says, Job did not sin. God fittingly declares to Job's friends that humans don't know everything. God knows Job received incorrect guidance from his friends and he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? I love that. Who is it that's just talking but, (coughs) excuse me, but really not saying anything? Then he humbles Job by asking a series of questions that could never be answered. Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. God then brings to an understanding that believers don't always know what God is doing in their lives. Sometimes we don't know why this side of eternity. A few weeks ago, I preached and I told you that when they came to Jesus with bad news, his response wasn't to answer why. It was to bring up more bad news and then say, repent or you too will perish. Jesus is saying, that's a distraction from the real thing, the condition of your soul. I, I came not to just make things better on earth, but to set men and women free from eternity without me. God then brings him to an understanding. And in the end, Job answers God by saying, I've declared that which I did not understand. And then the Bible says God blesses Job with twice as much as he had before his trials began. And it's important to note that if Job were to list the blessings of his life, I don't even know if that would have made an asterisk. Because that was just sort of God's way of saying, oh, I'm a father with extravagant love and I want to bless you like this. But that was not the blessing in the book of Job. The blessing is that his faith was tried and tested. His intimacy with God was increased. His trust of God was increased. That he proved what God had said. That his faith was not just faith, that his gratitude was not just gratitude for what God had done, but for who God was. Job knew the goodness of God. Do you know that they've done all kinds of studies? This is like a, psychologists love this. They, they study it all the time. And they've shown that by and large, bronze medal winners are always happier than silver medal winners. And you say, well, that doesn't seem to make sense because silver is a better medal. And I confirm that with Jamie, as we all know my athletic prowess and he, he did confirm with me that silver is, in fact, better than bronze. But you know what it is? The bronze medalists focus on not what they didn't have, but what they do have. They're grateful that they got a medal at all. But the silver medalists can't get away from how close they came to gold. See, one focuses on what they want, what they think they should have had, And the other one's grateful that they're not left with what they could have had. Perspective is everything. And gratitude changes your attitude. I'm very blessed to have a a good life. And in, in the past I took
I took a lot of things for granted, you know? And uh, I went from living at a nice home in a Kushnet, a beautiful wife, a couple kids, to not a nice home in Brockton with not beautiful five men in my room with me who acted like kids, so there was that. And I had a bad attitude for a while, you know? I focused on all that I had lost, you know, all that I had messed up. I had a good job, good money, nice house, family, the whole thing. And I kept focusing on what I lost. And I kept focusing on what, what I thought I needed to get back. And I was angry. I was angry at myself. I was angry at God. I was away from my wife and kids. No car, no job, no phone. I couldn't even keep like a dollar. You can't even keep coffee money in your pocket. You can't hold money. And then I had to ask you, I have like a big brother for the first 30 days, so you can't go anywhere without asking somebody. Be like, hey, I gotta go to the bathroom. Okay. And your big brother was always like 10 years younger than you. It's like, hey, big brother. How did I end up here in a program, right? As time went on, something changed, and the building was still ugly. I saw it five smelly, loud guys for roommates. But something inside of me began to change. And I began to think of not what I didn't have, but I began to be focused on how grateful I was that I was still alive, that God had spared my life, that I was in a program and so many people I know didn't make it, that he was restoring my marriage, that he was helping me to be a father to my kids. I recognized that I was growing closer to Jesus than I ever had been. I learned to be grateful for a pen in the, in the learning center. If you had a good pen, man, I mean, that was something. You'd have cheap pens that keep breaking. I need another pen, I need another pen. And then every night you get a good pen, oh man, you're grateful for a good pen. Or coffee. If you ever see the guys out in Walmart or whatever, and you say, hey, can I get you coffee? And they say no, they're lying. They want the coffee. They can't ask you for it. Go buy them a coffee, right? Grateful for one cup of coffee. My wife visited me one time. She brought me a pair of pants, one pair of pants. These Ralph Lauren cargo pants, I love those pants. Every night when I'd go to bed, I had this stupid, goofy pillowcase that belonged to my kids. And every night, I would look at that, and I would remember God's favor. Not what I didn't have, but what he was giving me, the powerful presence of him in my life while my dad was fighting cancer. Because, you know, just, you know, Pastor Jamie was, was preaching on Wednesday, and, uh, and he said, do, you, do we know what it means to be fully loved and fully known by God, to, to love Jesus? Do we know what that looks like? And, and I knew right away, for me. For me, it was a moment. And I've shared a little bit before, but I remember being at Teen Challenge and praying 
using like all good Christian, like Christian language in my prayer, like, you know, like, dear Lord, I love you. I wasn't a good steward with my resources and I wasn't, you know, a good husband. And if you would only, you know, put those responsibilities back, Lord, and I'm going to do the right thing. And Lord, if you would just do this and you would just do that. And I had this whole list and I thought, like, I, I thought I did a pretty good job. I'm like, he's definitely going to say yes. You made a good case. You know? And like not, this is as close to an audible voice of God I've ever heard. It wasn't audible, but it was like outside of my train of thought. It was like this foreign thought goes in and says, nope. And I'm like, no, wait, maybe you didn't hear me. Let me, let me start again. <laughs> Dear Lord, Father of heaven, right? Say, what if the only thing I'm going to promise you is Jesus? What if you don't get to determine how anything looks? looks? What if I don't know if your marriage is going to last? And I don't know what kind of relationship you're going to have with your kids. And I don't know if you're going to get a job making the money you made. What if all you had was Jesus is going to walk with you? And you're never going to be alone. And I don't think I'd ever asked that question before. I don't know why we don't ask that question. Because that's really the question, right? It's the question Job had to ask. And out of necessity, because it was either I can leave and die, and for me, that wouldn't have taken long. Or I could recognize this opportunity I had to fully surrender for once in my life. And I did. And I think everything else that happened in my life is a result of that moment, that decision. To say, yes, if nothing else, Jesus is enough. I think it was. I think it was Tim Keller who said, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. See, things didn't always go perfect. My dad died 12 months in the program. This program I couldn't wait to leave that I was going to do 30 days in. And he died, and I went home for a week. And I mourned. And then like it says about David, that he got up, and then he showered, and he went about his business. I got ready, and I went back to that program. And I decided that that 30 days God decided would turn into 14 years. But God used all that time. And I grew more in that 15 months than I did in 15 years previous to that. I had less, but I was more grateful. And so the richest man in the world is the one who knows the Lord and is surrounded by people he loves and who loves him. There is nothing better. See, the gift I was given was spiritual eyes to see. The gift Job had was spiritual eyes to see. What are your spiritual convictions? I'm going to tell you what Job's were. Job believed that God was ultimately good. He believed that everything he had was a sheer gift of God and he never did anything to deserve it. The Lord gave and the Lord took away. Job wasn't just fine with all of that. It wasn't, it, 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 it's not like Job didn't struggle, but he knew 
that God was good. He believed that God had given everything to him out of his own goodness and grace, and God alone had the right to do whatever he thought was best. It's one thing to say, I love God, I'm grateful God is good. It's another thing to live that out in the valley. In fact, let's read together the end of Job in chapter 42. It says, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things that were too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen, and I will speak. I will question, and you shall answer me. And I love this part. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. I heard other people testify. I knew about you, but now I know. Now I know as I know as I know who you are. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Saying, therefore, I recognize who you are and I repent, I turn away. And then the epilogue, it says, after the Lord had said these things to Job, Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as your servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and my servant Job will sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. He will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. So he kind of brings the friends over and goes, okay, look, knucklehead, you gave really bad advice, but the guy you gave it bad advice to, now he's going to pray for you that I don't deal with you the way I should deal. So you should be thankful to that friend of yours that you gave the bad advice. That's what's happening, right? Verse 10, after Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he has before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over and over all the trouble that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. And then it says, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. I love that, right? Doesn't matter your past. God's going to use it. And he's going to do greater things in your future, in my future, if we allow him, if we let it, if we don't give up. And then verse 17 says, and so Job died an old man and full of years. And ask the worship team to come up. See, the blessing in Job's life was not his stuff. It wasn't even his family. It was his faith. It was his relationship with God. A love that stood the test even when he didn't fully understand it because he knew God is good. Religion says God's God will love us if we change. But the gospel says God's love changes us. In Colossians, we're told to put on the new self. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not things on earth. In other words, have a spiritual perspective for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ. And then he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. If you ever get into that place where your, your mind, your focus is shifted, be thankful. Paul gets to the how this is all done in verse 16 when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
See, Aristotle said what makes a man virtuous is that he practices virtue, not that he tells people about virtue, not that he teaches about it, not that he talks about it. We can say we're grateful. We can tell other people about gratitude. But do we live gratefully? Why don't we stand as we close in worship? And remember to live with that gratitude in our hearts, knowing that he is good and that the Christian life becomes real to us as we live it out in the daily, in the trenches, in the practices where Jesus comes alongside of us and he walks with each of us together as we live for Jesus as salt and light to bring hope to the hopeless in this world.